But this morning, we are going to continue our series uh, overviewing, for the most part, the entire Bible this year, uh, but tracing out God's singular story, God's drama of redemption that plays out from Genesis all the way through Revelation, and we're going to trace it all the way through the Bible. And generally, for those of you that are guests with us, we take a book of the Bible uh, and we read through it and teach through it verse at a time, uh, trying to understand what God had intended for the people that he gave it to and what it means for us and how it applies for us. And this year, we're stepping back even further and we're tracing the one story through the whole Bible. And so some weeks we take big chunks and some weeks we take even bigger chunks. And this week, we're kicking off the Advent season of all things uh, with an overview of the book of Leviticus. Um, and, and in the office, Shelby and I have grown fond of calling this Adventicus. Um, and I actually pitched the idea of staying in Leviticus for all of Advent because it actually works when you really begin to read it. Uh, but nobody responded to that idea. Uh, text everybody and only Ray responded and Ray only had questions. So <laughs> this morning, most likely is our one shot at Leviticus. Uh, so if you make your way there, we will begin to work into it. Um, but here's the first thing I just want to acknowledge off the bat, and we've made some jokes about it, but uh, Leviticus uh, tends to prove pretty challenging for us when we read it or when we approach it in our study. And there's a couple big reasons, obvious reasons, why it proves challenging, and we just want to acknowledge them out the gate. Uh, one is that it's hard to figure out how the lives and the instructions in the book of Leviticus apply to the 21st century human. I mean, our lives are not like theirs. They lived in tents out in the wilderness and wandered. We live in homes with roofs and apartments and drive nice cars and pull into driveways. And even when we study how they worshiped and how they gathered together in the tabernacle that God gave them instructions for and they come to worship, when you bring an animal to the church these days, it's usually to be blessed by a priest somewhere. But when you brought an animal to the tabernacle in the Old Testament, that animal wasn't getting blessed. It was getting sacrificed and slaughtered. Uh, we don't even throw rice out at weddings anymore at churches because of what it does to the birds. You brought a bird to the tabernacle. Something far more severe was gonna happen to that bird. And it's just, their life was just totally different in every way, shape, form, or fashion, and we tend to stumble on it. The other big reason why we tend to have a hard time with Leviticus um, is honestly, it's a book of law. I mean, for the most part, Leviticus is a book of law. It's not a book of narrative. So you make your way from Genesis into Exodus, and there's some law in Exodus, but for the most part in Genesis and Exodus, it's narrative. There's stories, there are people, there's plots, there's conflict, there's tension, there's resolution. We love that stuff, and we're reading through, and we get to Leviticus, and it's like, it's law. And I don't think most people grab their Bibles, open up to Leviticus at night, and say, let's just comfort myself with some law. I don't even think lawyers read law in their off time. And we come to Leviticus and it's got this whole different speed about it and we tend to have a hard time with it. But what I, I think makes it even more challenging with that, and I was thinking about this and this is just true for me and I think it's true for a lot of us, is that we tend to carry a pretty negative idea and connotation with law. To us, law or rules or directives have a really restrictive and ungracious tone to them. We tend to think about law as being about what we're being kept from. And honestly, that's not the way that the law in the Old Testament, the law that comes from God was meant to be seen by his people and it wasn't the way it was seen by his people. So we'll get to that in a second. But what I think will help us be able to engage Leviticus uh, more fruitfully and more enjoyably this year and you're gonna come to Leviticus in your reading plan. So how many of you are reading along with us through the entire Bible this year? 
I would encourage you, those of you who have not jumped in, we are reading through the entire Bible together as a congregation this year. You are behind us in Exodus, and we did that on purpose so that we're ahead of you, so that we're preparing you for where you're going, and you're gonna come to Leviticus in just a few weeks, and we want to kind of help you as you get to it. So one thing that will help you engage it really well is by understanding how it fits into the bigger story that it's a part of. So to understand how it fits, you kind of have to look back a little bit to Exodus, which we just finished, and here's what you can see on a really big picture. In the first 15 chapters of Exodus, Exodus 1 through 15, you saw God deliver his people from slavery with a series of mighty signs and mighty wonders in the plagues and then bringing them out of Egypt and parting the Red Sea and taking them across and washing away the Egyptian armies who were following them through the sea and then guiding them and leading them in the, in the wilderness. And you find that in Exodus 1 through 15, but God did that to bring them to Mount Sinai. And you find God's dealing with Exodus, with the, with the Israelites in Exodus right there in chapter 16 through 19, where God brings his people out of Egypt, out of slavery to Sinai so that they can worship him, so that God can make a covenant with them. And you find that in these verses. And God said something amazing in there that will help us as we get into Leviticus. And this is what he said in Exodus chapter 19, uh, verse four. God said that you yourselves, talking to the Israelites, have seen what I did to the Egyptians. You saw what I did with your own eyes. You were right there. You've seen what I did to the Egyptians. And how, listen to this, how I bore you on eagle's wings and brought you to myself. What a contrast. You saw how I just washed them away in the river when they were coming after you. But then how I just gently bore you on my wings to bring you to myself. Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all the peoples. And now he's gonna give them an identity. For the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the people of Israel. And so in Exodus 20 through 24, God confirms his role as king and their responsibilities as people who are a part of his kingdom through this covenant. And he gives them laws, he gives them dictates, he gives them the Ten Commandments and and other directions for life for how they can be a holy people, how they can be a royal priesthood. And then if that wasn't enough for him to deliver them and bring them to himself and for him to covenant with them and promise to be their king and for them to be his people and then to give them directions for how to do the very thing he's called them to do, this great king says that I wanna be with you. I'm not gonna stay up here away from you. I'm not gonna be a king over here and you be my kingdom people over there. I wanna dwell in your midst. We talked about how staggering a declaration that was last week. In the remaining parts of Exodus 25 through 40, God then gives Moses and the people of Israel directions for how to build the tabernacle, how to build the place where the glory of this God will dwell amongst his people. And he begins to give them that picture and that pattern. And the book of Leviticus Leviticus is given to Moses at the end of that time, at the end of Exodus chapter 40, but while Moses is still with God, and Leviticus begins to dictate how that tabernacle is going to be used and, and what it looks like. Because when God says, I am gonna redeem you and bring you to myself to make you my people, to be a holy people, to be a, a royal priesthood, and I wanna dwell amidst you, and he gives them this picture for the tabernacle, there's a big question that's still hanging up in the air. I mean, if you're following along with the story from the beginning, there's still a really big question. I mean, how is this holy and righteous God, this sovereign creator and deliverer, how is he really going to live amidst his sinful and impure people? I mean, how when he comes to dwell with his people in this place, in his holiness, is he just not gonna wipe us out in our sin? 
And he continues to deliver the answer to that in the book of Leviticus. And so I'm gonna give you a a big flyover, 50,000 foot view of Leviticus to kind of help you in your reading. But then we're gonna drill down to one particular part and see something in particular as we go through it this morning. Here's, Here's the big picture of how God is going to show his people, tell his people that he is gonna dwell with them in his holiness and justice in the midst of their sin and impurity still. Leviticus chapter one through seven, here's what it looks like. God is going to explain the sacrifices that he's going to ordain for his people that are gonna deal with the issue of sin and impurity. The issue of sin and impurity. And then in in chapters eight through 10, God's gonna give them something else. He's gonna dictate for them the instructions for the priests who are gonna intercede for Israel and then lead Israel in the worship of God. Very important, we're not gonna have time to delve into it this morning, but after chapters 10, he's gonna begin to instruct them in something else. In chapters 11 through 15, he's gonna teach Israel the laws and the directions of impurity and defilement and give them instruction on how to deal with that. And here's something I told the first service and I wanna tell you, because I don't know how much we'll get into it in the rest of the sermon this morning, but when you get to Leviticus, even in Exodus, Leviticus, and part of Numbers, and you begin to deal with the issue of defilement, purity and impurity. And we tend as New Testament readers to come to that with this overarching idea of impurity being sinful, purity being holy. As you read Leviticus, make note when you get to this section of the, of the book on how many particular things cause defilement that aren't sinful. And that's not sinful. Just as an example, if your spouse died, husband, wife, child died. You needed to deal with them, to deal with their body and to take care of them. Now, dealing with a a, a dead body, either animal or a human, would make you defiled. It's not sinful. It's an act of love and care you do, but there's something God's trying to communicate in it, but it's not sinful. And so there was a response that you were to have to go through a process where you would be purified and cleansed. So just as you get into Leviticus, some of the ways we tend to think about it and categorize it uh, tend to miss the message sometimes. So he's gonna give them directions and laws dealing with purity and impurity and defilement, but then how to deal with it. And then in the last part of 16, God's gonna provide a yearly ceremony that's gonna remove every last ounce of impurity from the kingdom every single year, once a year. If you've ever heard a sermon on Leviticus, it's probably from Leviticus chapter 16. Uh, The last part of Leviticus, chapters 17 through 27, God is gonna give more details, more laws that direct Israel and what it means to live as a kingdom of priests in a holy nation in all of life. I mean, God is going to communicate through these chapters that his holiness, your responsibility to be a holy people and a kingdom of priests touches every aspect of life. There isn't a secular secular and sacred divide in understanding the holiness of God and our responsibility to be his people. And this is what's being communicated there at the end. But here's what I want you to see in the big picture. When you and I open up Leviticus and we try to read it, it tends to be something that is a burden to us. We come to it in our plan and we feel burdened in having to go through Leviticus. How can I skip from Leviticus, get maybe to Deuteronomy, tell some stories again, and then get on to the other parts that seem to be a little more interesting? It's a burden that we have to go through to check off the list to say we actually read through the entire Bible and we're not lying. When the Israelites heard what God dictated in the book of Leviticus, it wasn't a burden for them. When they heard what God said to Moses that we have in the book of Leviticus, what they saw were God's means of grace. They were the very things that this king who's now gonna dwell amongst them, who's high and who's holy, is the very means that he's gonna give them to be in relationship with them. This same king who had promised to now be with them and covenanted to be with them. 
So it's crucial to remember as you read Leviticus and study Leviticus as a community, and even as we talk about it on Sunday morning, that Leviticus, in giving God's law and direction to the people, it's huge that you remember what Raymond said a few weeks ago in Exodus. God's law, God's directions for his people did not come before God redeemed his people. They came after he redeemed his people. The law, what we find in Leviticus, what we find in parts of Exodus, Leviticus, and even parts of Numbers, the law is actually a gift that comes from their redeemer. A direction, a guide for how they are to live as a holy nation and a kingdom of priests. God is not saying to his people in Leviticus and in Numbers, he's not saying, here's what you need to do so that I can love you and save you. The law isn't a means to salvation and, and redemption. It's just the opposite. What you see in Leviticus and what you see through the rest of the Old Testament is that obedience flows from grace. Obedience doesn't buy grace or earn it. This is a huge principle even as we understand how God works with us now. Yeah, I want you to hear something real quick. This is from a guy named Michael Williams. He was a professor at a seminary in St. Louis. He wrote a fabulous book called As Far As the Curse Is Found. I would encourage any of you to read it. It's on the overarching story of the whole Bible. But this is what he says about the law. He said the law was given to those who had been saved by grace in order to show them how to live in that grace. In fact, we can talk of the law as a further act of grace. Have you ever thought about the law as being an act of grace? A gift to God's people that serves his covenant people in gracious purposes. Now, here's something that will transform the way you understand Leviticus forever and the way that we will talk about it this morning. The call of the law is to translate God's grace into action. I mean, have you ever thought about or heard about the law being the way to translate God's grace into action? To see God's grace at work in the law in Leviticus, there are a few things that we've got to see. A few things God was communicating to his people through what he prescribes for his people, and that's that he's a holy God. He is a holy God. And you and I, we're sinful people. And though he's a holy God and we're sinful people, he demands holiness from us. He has called us to be a holy nation, a royal priesthood. That's our description. We can't do it in and of ourselves. And here's the thing that God shows, declares, depicts in the Old Testament, not even just in the New Testament. Do you get this? Whatever God requires of his people, he always provides first. He's a holy God. You are a sinful man and woman. He calls you to be holy and you can't. But whatever he requires of you, he always provides. It's always grace in action. So as we go through Leviticus, in particular one section of Leviticus, what I hope that you will see is what I really believe God wanted and intended for Israel to see in this process was to understand just how holy God really is. It's one thing to say God's holy, for you to memorize that God's holy. It's a whole nother thing for him to depict the level and the depth of his holiness to you in a tremendously visceral way. And it's another thing to say that I'm a simple person. I'm a sinner. It's another thing to be confronted with the depth of your sin in an entirely physical and full five sense visceral way day in and day out. God needs his people to see that he is holy and that they're sinful. And in that, hopefully, we'll see that our need for grace and God's provision of that grace. The most, 
I think, clear demonstration of that in Leviticus is actually in the first seven chapters. And we'll be bouncing around those seven chapters for the last 28 minutes that we actually have this morning. In Leviticus, excuse me, chapters one through seven, God gives the, the blueprint, God gives the instructions, God gives the rules, the dictates for five offerings or five sacrifices that are gonna be woven into the life of God's people. Five regular offerings that as you read them, and again, we talk about it all the time around here, read the Bible like a human. And as you read these offerings and you read these sacrifices, they will assault your senses. I mean, just imagine yourself there. We're gonna try to do that some this morning. Just imagine yourself there. These offerings were intended to assault the senses of his people, informing their mind all along of just how holy he is and just how sinful we are and how serious that sin is. But at the same time, just how real, just how real God's provision of grace is. And it comes, as you'll see, through a substitute. So open up Leviticus chapter one. Hopefully I gave you enough time to find this often untouched book of the Bible. And in chapter one, we come, we're, we're encountered with the, the most, uh, I would often say important, and most commentators said important, offering or sacrifice in the life of the Israelites was called the burnt offering. This burnt offering was offered at nearly every festival and every, every celebration of the life of Israel. Um, and it was offered twice a day, once in the morning and once in the evening. And here's what I just want you to note. It's a sidebar. Um, we'll get to the potential importance down the road here in a little bit. But the first three things we come to in chapters one, two, and three, there's three offerings. All three of those are voluntary. As you read through it, you'll note, when you note this when you study it in a few weeks, nowhere in chapters one, two, and three for those three offerings does God prescribe when you do this or on what account you're required to do this. It's all voluntary. These come from the heart. And the most important and the the biggest in this is is the burnt offering. It's a very, very, very personal experience and you'll see it as we begin to read it. And and what God intended in this offering was for the people to to do this offering as a way of, of demonstrating themselves wholly set apart, wholly consecrated to God alone. This was a, an offering of, of total consecration. All of me is for all of you. Very personal offering and sacrifice as well that was intended to make a deep impression on the conscience and life of the one who was offering it. So let's look at chapter one. Let's just read a piece of it and see if we can get a sense of this. Now look at verse three. In his offering, if his offering is a burnt offering from the herd, so he's gonna be talking about bulls here. That's what the herd is. He shall offer a male without blemish, so very costly bull, the best bull, the one that would produce the best offspring. Now you take that bull and you shall bring it to the entrance of the tent of meeting that he may be accepted before the Lord. Now we gotta watch the grammar here. He, who's he talking about is he. The one who's bringing it, right? So let's make it you. Just pretend you're there, okay? So you shall lay your hand on the head of the burnt offering and it shall be accepted for you to make atonement for you. Now watch what has to happen here. Then you, not the priest, you shall kill the bull before the Lord. And Aaron's sons, the priest, shall bring the blood and throw the blood against the sides of the altar that's at the entrance of the tent of meeting. Then you shall flay. You chefs in here know what that means? Flaying was skinning. Now you're gonna skin the bull, not the priest, not a team of butchers, you. Now you shall flay the burnt offering 
and cut it into pieces. Now you gotta butcher it. And the sons of Aaron the priest shall put fire on the altar and arrange wood on the fire. And Aaron's sons the priest shall arrange the pieces that you have butchered, the head and the fat on the wood that is on the fire on the altar, but its entrails and legs he shall wash with water. And the priest shall then burn, how much? All of it on the altar as a burnt offering, a food offering with a pleasing aroma to the Lord. Now if we kept reading through chapter one, you'll, say, you'll see three different, three sets of very similar instructions. And there's something to note as you go. And in the next section, you'll see that if you bring an offering from the flock, and he's talking about a lamb or a goat, and the next section says if you bring uh, an offering of the birds, and he gives a particular number and type of bird that's supposed to be brought. What God is saying there is that this particular offering and sacrifice is a means-based offering. You bring the best that you've got. If you can't afford a bull, you bring a, the best lamb or the best goat. If you can't even afford that, he's got particular provisions for the birds that you bring. So this is a means-based offering. And all the instructions are really similar except for the third one where there's birds that are involved. In that particular offering, only the priest does the work of butchery on that one, uh, not the people. But these are, they're all very similar. But what God's saying in that is that this is, a, this is means-based. It's gonna cost you. That bull, that lamb, that goat, that's the best you got. Now you're bringing it into this offering for the Lord. Now when and why did you do this burnt offering? Now we already said, and you'll find it in Numbers chapter 28, that this was done twice a day. It was a, done in the morning sacrifice and that the evening sacrifice. It was also part of the special ceremonies, the special festivals and feasts, and you'll find record of those in, in kind of the end of Leviticus, but you'll also get them in Numbers, so we'll probably talk about them uh, coming up when we get to Numbers a little more specifically. But the burnt offerings were part of these ceremonies and, and feasts, and I, I did a little bit of math, and I told you in the past, I'm not a mathematician, so you can correct me, but reading through God's uh, prescriptions for these feasts and these celebrations and when the burnt offering was brought, it, it could very well be that for an Israelite on a particular feast day or festival, you would bring 13 bulls, two rams, and 14 lambs to offer in a sacrifice in a day. In a day. And you would also find these burnt offerings, these sacrifices uh, being done to deal with issues of ritual impurity. And we talked about purity and cleanliness. So if someone had passed and you had taken care of them and, and, and buried them and done what you were supposed to do, part of the process of being purified from that involved a burnt offering. Uh, you find this when you, when you read the story of Mary and Joseph after Jesus was born, taking Jesus to the temple and, and bringing the pigeons, the, the doves, as part of Mary's cleansing. It's a burnt offering that was being offered as part of purity. Now, there's nothing wrong with having a child, is there? Think sinful in that? Well, again, the impurity, it's not always an issue of bad and good sin and holy, it's just something God was communicating. And so you'll find these burnt offerings as part of the life of Israel at different times and different places. But why did it actually happen? I mean, what was going on in this offering? You see it already in the first few verses. You brought this bull to the tent and you offered this sacrifice to make atonement for yourself. Atonement was being accomplished in this sacrifice. Now, when John Wycliffe was translating the Bible into English, he didn't really have an English word to communicate what's being communicated here, and so he created one. Atonement, that word you find in your Bible, he created to communicate a word that meant what atonement is trying to capture, and that's at one make. Something is separated. It's a chasm, a distance between these two parties that need to be reconciled. How is reconciliation accomplished? How is one made? How is at one made? How do you do that? This is what atonement is after. If you remember the very real and visceral description, you would bring that bull to the tent of meeting 
and you would lay your hands on that bull. And in laying your hands on that bull, you were identifying yourself with that animal. Putting your hands on that animal's head was signifying the transfer of your guilt onto that animal, your substitute. And so when that animal died, he died for your sins in your place. An atonement was being made for your sins. Now, when that happened, you went through the process of butchering and flaying. I mean, you slit his throat. I don't know if you've ever been around the butchery of an animal. When I was in Japan, I need to bring my wife up here. When I was in Japan, I missed the annual slaughter of the chickens at our in-laws farm. And so my wife and Mignon uh, and, and a couple people went up there and it took six people half a day to slaughter 60 chickens. And to listen to them talk about the sounds and the smells and the birds that would gather and the noises and even just the cutting into parts like you read here in the butchering of the bird still being warm, having to remove, very visceral thing. And so as you would go through this process with your bull and the priest would clean what he had to clean and the fire would be going, he would put the entire thing, the whole bull on that altar and it would all be burned and it would all be consumed. You'll find as we get to some of the other offerings, pieces were set apart for different purposes, but not in this one, not in the burnt offering. The whole thing was consumed. The most valuable sacrifice was given. The whole thing was burnt as a way of consecrating your whole self, all that you are to God as king. And if you look really closely, you'll notice a really interesting effect of this offering. Verses 9, 13, and 17, all three sets of instructions say that when this offering is made and this whole animal is burnt, it's a pleasing aroma to the Lord. As though God the Father takes in a a deep, a deep breath of the aroma of this offering. And in that breath, he's pleased. He's satisfied in the sacrifice of this substitute. Now, something else in particular about this offering I want you to see, and we won't go so deep into the other ones. We'll fly through them a little bit more, but in chapter six, you'll, you'll find in these last couple chapters, of six and seven, the instructions for the priests in relation to these offerings, and there's something in particular related to the burnt offering I want you to see. In chapter six, verse eight, the Lord spoke to Moses, and this is what he said. It's gonna come up on the screen for you. He, this is what he said. Command Aaron and his sons, saying, this is the law of the burnt offering. The burnt offering shall be on the hearth, on the altar, all night until the morning. And the fire on the altar shall be kept burning on it. Now in verse 12, skip down. It says, the fire on the altar shall be kept burning on it. It shall not go out. The priest shall burn wood on it every morning. And he shall arrange the burnt offering on it. And it shall burn on it the fat of the peace offering, which we'll get to in a minute. Fire shall be kept burning on the altar continually. And it will not go out. So the priests had a system for how throughout the night they would rotate shifts to keep this sacrifice and the fire on this altar burning 24 hours a day, seven days a week. And the people of God surrounding the tabernacle, living in the midst and around the tabernacle would have a 24 hour a day, seven day a week reminder every time they saw the smoke rising from the tabernacle and every time they took in a deep whiff of the aroma of this sacrifice being burnt in the tabernacle that a day does not go by when atonement and forgiveness and reconciliation is not necessary for them to live in the midst of a holy and righteous God. Day in and day out, they were reminded bull after bird, bull after bull and bird after bird, goat after goat and lamb after lamb. They were reminded of this because every single day in the presence of a holy God is a day that they deserve to die apart 
from a sacrifice who stood in their place. Apart from this particular sacrifice. So that's just one, there's five offerings. That's the burnt, that's the big one, that's the one you'll find most common in the Old Testament and it will work its way into the festivals most often, but there's four more. And so we're gonna deal with the other two that deal particularly with sin and then we'll come back to the last two that deal with our response to God for his offering of a substitute in our place. So switch over to chapter four. We'll look really quickly at what's called the sin offering. The sin offering, there's a couple things about this one I just wanna point out to you for you to make note of, for us to understand and it'll help you as you're reading through. Chapter four, this goes from chapter four, verse one through chapter five, verse 13. The sin offering does. And this is what God says, look in chapter four, verse one. The Lord spoke to Moses and he said, speak to the people of Israel saying that if anyone sins, what's the next word? If anyone sins unintentionally, and any of the Lord's commandments about the things not to be done or does any of them. This sin offering is often called the unintentional sin offering or more commonly called the I didn't mean to sacrifice. That's what this is symbolizing. This is the I didn't mean to sacrifice. Let me ask you something as we just kind of think about this a little more personally. How easy is it for you to actually excuse things that you have done or things that you have failed to do with the statement, I didn't mean to. I mean, if there's one phrase that's become on repeat in our house with the seven-year-old, it's, I didn't mean to. But as adults, just think about this. How often have these I didn't mean to's these sins that are often called sins of omission. Doing, not doing what we were supposed to do. How often have these I didn't mean to's piled up to become serious divides between people that need to be healed, they need to be reconciled, they need to be dealt with. Here's the big thing to catch with the unintentional sin offering. God has an entirely distinct and wholly set apart category of sacrifices just for the I didn't mean to's. Now you and I, we kind of have this way of relativizing our sin. We have a way of taking our I didn't mean to's and minimizing the impact that they've had on other people. But God sees it all sin, not just the intentional, but the unintentional. Not just the I meant to's, but the I didn't mean to's. He sees that all of them cause harm not only to us, but to our relationship with him and to our relationship with other people and that all sin, intentional and unintentional, ultimately defiles us and needs purification. The sin offering, the unintentional sin offering, dealt with the purification needed because of our sin. And here's something else just to pick up in this whole thing. It dealt with the unintentional sin of everybody. There was no one that was excluded from this. You'll see, I'll point it out to you really quick. If you've got chapter four opened up in Leviticus, look, look there real quick. I'm gonna run through it. You can just see. Look at verse three. This is what the Lord said to Moses. He said, if it's the anointed priest who sins, thus, look, if he sins unintentionally, I didn't mean to, it has dire consequences. Look at what he said. If it's the unintentional priest who sins, thus bringing guilt on the people, 
then he shall offer for the sin he had committed a bull from the herd without blemish for the Lord as a sin offering. Now look down to verse 13. If the whole congregation of Israel sins unintentionally and the thing is hidden from the eyes of the assembly and they do any one of the things that by the Lord's command they ought not to do and they realize their guilt, when the sin which they have committed becomes known, they assembly shall offer a bull and it gives the instructions for what they should do. Look down at verse 22. When the leader, talking about a particular leader of a tribe of Israel, most likely, when a leader sins, doing unintentionally any one of the things that by God's commandments of the Lord is God, he ought not be done and realizes his guilt. Look at verse 27. If any one of the common people sins unintentionally in doing any one of these things, that by the Lord's commandments ought not be done and realizes his guilt. See, what God is trying to communicate here is that no one's sin is hidden from his eyes. And also that no one's sin Not even the most common person in all of Israel. No one's sin is done in isolation. All of our sin defiles not only us, but impacts our relationship with others and our relationship with God. Your sin is never, even though you think it's in secret, though you think no one else is around you, no one else knows what you're doing, thinking, saying, not doing that you're supposed to do, just because you think you've got it hidden. God has an entirely different category of sacrifices for unintentional sins. God has an entirely different approach to the sin that you and I so easily tend to minimize and relativize. And so many of us think that our sin is not as bad as someone else's. I mean, you've got a person or a category of people in your mind that if you're really honest with yourself, you're not as bad as. Your sin is not as bad as theirs. God has an entirely different category for things that are even unintentional. I mean, we tend to take these things, the I didn't mean to's, those sins of omission, and we tend to think they're not really as serious as they are. We tend to think that, that sin is more what we do, not what we've failed to do, not what we didn't mean to. It's not the way that God sees it. It's not the way that he looks upon it. But there's something else with this sin, this unintentional sin offering I just want you to catch really quick. Chapter five, verse five. Look at what it says. I'll read it to you. It'll come up here. God says that when this person, when he realizes his guilt in any of these and he confesses the sin that he's committed, he shall bring to the Lord his compensation for the sin that he's committed, a female from the flock, a lamb or a goat for a sin offering, and the priest shall make atonement for his sin. Confession and sacrifice must be offered before reconciliation and atonement is made for sin. The bar has been up now. Now this sacrifice has to be preceded by and accompanied by confession. And it's gonna ratchet up just a little bit more here in just a second in the guilt offering. The next offering you see in the end of chapter five, the guilt offering. The guilt offering goes beyond the sacrifice required and includes the confession of sin that was necessary in the sin offering. But the guilt offering says this, now restitution needs to be paid. Restitution needs to be made for what you've done. And the guilt offering, as you read through the details of it, deal with when you have unintentionally uh, sinned against, in one category, sacred property, which is a really interesting thing to read, or or when you now, in different ways that God outlines in chapter five and six, have sinned against your neighbor or sinned against someone else. What, What God says is that the guilty party has to confess his sin publicly has to offer the sacrifice of the guilt offering, has to make full restitution of what was defrauded 
and he has to add an additional 20% to his sacrifice. Rather than quick and cheap and easy repentance, hey buddy, I'm sorry, can you just, I won't do it again. Rather than quick and cheap and easy repentance, God's communicating to his people through these sacrifices, through what's woven into their life and their relationships. Your sin deals with more than just you. Your sin has consequences on your relationship and the lives of people around you. Your sin is not just between you and you alone. It's between you and God and you and the people in your life. Your sin hurts you. It hurts God. It hurts your relationships. It has consequences. And the cost of committing that sin is high. And the cost of receiving forgiveness is high as well. And we'll see that ultimately it's God who pays that price. Now there are two remaining sacrifices in these first seven chapters and we'll touch on them now because they don't necessarily deal with our response to sin. They deal with our response to God after we've gone through these sacrifices. You find the first one in chapter two. It's called the grain offering. Some of your Bibles may say the cereal offering. And the grain offering often accompanied the burnt offering in festivals or in different celebrations, but it could be brought without the burnt offering in and of itself. Again, it was voluntary. It wasn't mandated by God for any particular thing. It was a voluntary offering that was given to you from your heart. And what the grain offering was composed of was particular fine flour and oil and frankincense and salt. And this offering in particular that you would bring according to God's regulations, was a way of you expressing gratitude and thankfulness to God. Oftentimes it would accompany the harvest and you'd be thanking God for his continual watch over you and provision for you by bringing the first, the best of what you had, what you had gathered. And it would comprise this grain offering according to the way that God had prescribed it. And it was you freely saying, thank you for providing, thank you for knowing, thank you for meeting my needs, thank you for continuing to uphold your faithfulness and your covenant to me. Please remember me moving forward. It was saying thanks. That's all it was about. And then you find the next one, the fellowship offering. Some of your Bibles will say the peace offering. Uh, this involved a sacrifice very similar to the burnt offering, the sacrifice of a bull, but it was completely different. Uh, this was a festive meal. And God's prescriptions for the fellowship offering required you to come and there was a process for sacrificing this bull, but it was a little bit different. Remember in the, in the burnt offering, the entire thing was burnt up as a way of giving yourself wholly over to the Lord. In this particular offering, the fellowship offering or the peace offering, only part of the bull was burned to a crisp. The rest of it was for you to share with your family, with your friends, and with the priests that had been with you in this process of offering and sacrifice. And this was a way of acknowledging I have been reconciled to God through the substitute of another who's, who took the penalty for my sin. I've been made right with God. Atonement has come. Forgiveness has come. Unity has come between God and I. And now by the forgiveness of my sin, unity has come between myself and others. Let's celebrate. Let's celebrate. And it was an entire meal that could take days that you would eat with your family and your friends right there in the tabernacle, in the presence of God, fellowshipping with God and with others because of the forgiveness and the unity that's come through this substitutionary sacrifice that has paid the price for your sins. What else? I mean, what else would incite someone voluntarily to take their best and to take their first and bring it to God and say thank you? if it wasn't the recognition that I am sinful and my sin deserves death. But someone else has paid the price. 
someone else has now tasted death in my place because of my sin. Should not forgiveness lead to and cultivate and produce the greatest depth of gratitude in our hearts? I mean, now, now you're gonna put yourself in, in the shoes of an Israelite. We're gonna take the last few minutes. I want you just to put yourself in their place and I just want you to think about this. Would you not be relieved? And not only relieved, but would you not begin to bubble up with joy to know that instead of paying the penalty for your sin that you have brought this animal to the tabernacle for, God would accept something else in your place? I mean, how would you feel if you knew and began to see the depth of your sin in the light of the holiness of God, but to know that God would forgive you and accept something else in your place to sacrifice for your sin? I mean, just imagine what that must have felt like. The sacrifice that it cost them to take their best and to bring it to God. The best bull that would produce the best of the herd, you're just gonna voluntarily take now to the temple to sacrifice, nothing getting produced out of it. And the burnt offering, the whole thing's gonna get burnt up on the altar. I mean, imagine the burden to get there, to get the animal there, to, to the butchering process. Your hand on this bull, slitting its throat, flaying it, skinning it, cutting it, butchering it. Imagine the time that it took to do it to all these animals. The burden that you were facing getting there, but imagine the emotional burden of knowing that when you get there, you're gonna put your hand on this animal's head. And you put your hand on, this hand, hand on this animal's head in the sight of the priest and the people with you. you. Publicly confess your sin. I'm Robert Green. I'm a sinner. I deserve to die. And you take the knife and you slice the animal's throat. The noises that it makes. The blood begins to pour out. Just the sound of the amount of blood that must pour out the throat of a bull his life being poured out literally in front of you at your feet, the priest capturing that blood and these particular pictures that God ordained to put on the altar. Life poured out and now you've got to skin it. You've got to take this bull and you've got to cut its very skin off of it. Then you've got to cut it into pieces. You've got to butcher it. All along, you can't help but think that you're sitting there doing this going, it should be me. It's, it's my sin. I'm the one that deserves this. But this innocent animal has become my substitute. And you realize as you watch the life come out of it, it died so that I could actually live. And when you've done what you're supposed to do and the priest has done what he's supposed to do and he prepares it and he puts it on the altar, you watch that bull burn. You watch what you brought and had just killed, now burn. And you realize as God said, that that sacrifice, as you watch it waft up into the air, is a pleasing aroma to God. As though he takes that deep breath in, breathes it in deep and says, I'm pleased. I'm pleased in the sacrifice of that substitute. And part of what God intended in instilling these offerings and these ceremonies and these practices and these rituals in the life of Israel was not only to deal with this sin, but it was to stir up something in them. It was to create in them a longing and a hope and an expectation for what was to come because you knew that when you walked out of that tabernacle and it was all done and you were living in the relief of the priest announcing that you had been forgiven and atonement was made, you knew you'd be right back there again. 
No matter what you did and how hard you tried, you could never be as holy as God was calling you to be and there was gonna be another bull, another lamb, another goat, another bird. You're gonna do it all over again. And part of what God intended was to stir up in his people a longing for the day when his promise would be fulfilled. The day when he said it's all gonna come to an end. The serpent is going to be crushed. I am going to make right all that has gone wrong. And you know with every sacrifice, generation after generation, a longing was being created in his people, which means when the day came and the angel appeared to Mary, and he said, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the one, the child to be born to you will be called Holy. The Holy Son of God. The true Holy One entered the filth and the sinfulness and the brokenness of this world in order that he might offer himself a sacrifice for sin to shed his blood so that we might finally and fully become who God has intended us to be. And so just as the Israelites would hear Leviticus and read Leviticus throughout the centuries in the context of what God did for them, redeeming them from slavery, being their redeemer, now you and I on this side of the cross hear Leviticus and read Leviticus through the redeeming work of what God's done for us in Jesus. Just listen to this. Jesus has become now God's full and final provision for us through a sacrifice. In Jesus, he put an end to all the need for the sacrifices that he had prepared for his people in Leviticus. Look at what Hebrews 9 says. It says that Jesus appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. Here's something just staggering for you to get when you read this. As Christ has fulfilled these sacrificial requirements that God gave his people in the Old Testament, it doesn't mean that God no longer requires a sacrifice for sin. It doesn't mean that our sin no longer requires sacrifice. It means that Jesus has become the once and for all final and full sacrifice that we put our faith in. We no longer have to come with bulls and goats and lambs and birds because the final sacrifice has already been made. Our faith is in that sacrifice for our sin. God still requires a sacrifice. We just believe that Jesus made the once for all final sacrifice for our sin. Jesus' sacrifice was in our place as our substitute. So just as the people of God would place their hands on that bull or on that sheep or on that goat, and in that, their, their sins were symbolically transferred to that innocent animal. So when we, by faith, lay our hands on the person of Jesus Christ in our place for our sins, our guilt is transferred to him, our substitute. Paul told the Corinthian church that it was for our sake. For for our sake, God made him, talking about Jesus, who knew no sin, to be sin. Our sin on him, not just symbolically, but real, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. And Jesus' sacrifice as our substitute in our place for our sins has become the pleasing aroma of grace in the nostrils of our Father. Ephesians 5 says that God loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. You and I need a substitute. Jesus is the only one who has exhausted the wrath of God turned away the wrath of God, makes possible the cleansing of us from our sins 
so that we can be called a child of God and no longer an enemy of God. That we might have the righteousness of God, what's necessary for us to live forever in the kingdom of God as his holy people, as his royal priesthood. And his word says if we confess our sin, he's faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So now, don't imagine yourself at the tabernacle. Imagine yourself at the cross, placing your hands onto Jesus, confessing your sin, confessing the depths of who you are, agreeing with God about your sin, transferring your guilt onto him, identifying with him in his death, in your place, for your sin. See himself commit his spirit into the hands of his father. And now see as God the Father breathes in deep the aroma that pleases him from the sacrifice of his son for your sins. Now, now you may hear the Father, now you can hear the Father look at you and say to you, with you I'm pleased. With you I'm pleased because of my substitute. God's holy. We're not. He demands holiness from his people. And he graciously provides all that he requires. Let me pray for us this morning. Father, we come to you this morning. We say thank you with our whole heart. Thank you for Jesus. Lord, how amazing is it that you made a provision for even Israel then? How much greater is it now that we don't have to live through what they had to live through in order to receive forgiveness for ourselves? Thank you that we simply need to confess our sins and believe in the once for all sacrifice of your son in our place as our substitute. That atonement was made, sin was paid for, and we need not have to pay that same penalty for our sin again. Lord, by your Holy Spirit, stir a gratitude for that in our hearts, if not for the first time, then the thousandth time, and let us out of gratitude live, as Paul said, living sacrifices. Let our life, a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing, let that be our spiritual worship to you now. We ask that you just expose the areas in our life that that challenge your authority, that challenge your glory, where there needs to be adjustment for your namesake and our joy. We ask this in Jesus' precious name, amen.